0: The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again.
1: Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest
0: is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be, and I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time.
1: The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy.
0: Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns.
1: But what does that even mean?
0: No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I am your host, Tyler, someone who has loved the Wheel of Time for most of my life and is now very excited to introduce Greg to this world that I have known for so long.
1: And I am Greg, and I know nothing about anything that's going on in this book. (laughs) Uh, We are so excited that you decided to join us for our first official episode, Uh, and this will be a discussion of the two prologue chapters uh, that are found at the beginning of most new editions of uh, The the Wheel of Time, or excuse me, The Eye of the World, the first book of The Wheel of Time, Uh, and this will be a discussion of the chapters Ravens and... And uh, Dragon Mount, Tyler. Could you tell people uh, where to find Ravens if it's not in their uh, copy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if you have an older copy of the book, basically anything from before Amazon started kind of announcing things about the book about the show, if you have the little sticker on your book that says this is a new show that's coming out. You probably have Ravens in your book. If you don't, you've got a few options. My best advice, if you're looking for something that is definitely legal, is to go to your local library. The easiest way to get access to Ravens is that it was first released uh, in a children's version of the book. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the next time that it became widely available to the public was in the ebook edition of the book. So if your library has an ebook copy of the book that you're able to get access to, it's super quick. It's It's 20 pages, very easy to get. If you don't mind being a little bit illegal, there are copies of Ravens available online. At one point, Robert Jordan had posted it for free on his website for fans of the series. It is now no longer available on his official website, but given that it was at one point free, I will leave each of you to decide how you feel about whether or not this is piracy, but you've definitely got options. It's also worth noting, Ravens is not an especially essential chapter for the, you know, knowing the book or understanding what's going on. So if you don't have access to it, you can listen to our summary and that may be all you need. Uh, It's obviously, you know, not skippable, I love it, but it's not essential to the book, uh, as is. Um, That being said, get it at your library. That's my best advice. So. I think it makes sense then to just dive into a quick summary of the chapter, unless there was anything else you wanted to do introduction-wise first, Greg.
1: I just wanted to say I was glad we already were helping criminals within the first five minutes of our first episode. I mean, if we are going to make a name for ourselves in the podcast space, it should be that. So no, I'm good. I think we should dive right in and uh, start discussing uh, Ravens. So uh, you mentioned a summary. Why don't you go ahead as the expert and give us a brief overview of what is found in this chapter?
0: Uh, yeah, so this is a chapter that primarily follows uh, the character of Egwene. She is nine years old. She is carrying water for the shearing of sheep. And it primarily concerns first her trying to avoid her sisters and any interference that they might impose upon her life. She is largely unsuccessful in that. I believe she ends up running into three of her four sisters despite trying to avoid all of them. Um, it soon become apparent that she's not only wandering around handing out water as she's supposed to, she is also looking for uh, a boy she knows, Rand, and she ends up looking for both Perrin and Matt trying to find them. Eventually, she tracks them down. They are all called before Egwene's mother, or sorry, Egwene's father, the uh, mayor of town. And while they are there, he rewards the boys for their hard work with a story, which ends up being told by Rand's father, Tam L. Thor, uh, describing the, the War of Shadow and the, how the last dragon tainted the world in his quest to stop the dark one. Um, and that is a lot of description for actually kind of a slight chapter, which I'm curious, Greg, as someone who this is your first time entering the Wheel, the wheel of Time, this is a different place than many people initially entered this world, right? Prior to the, the release of the ebooks, the vast majority of people who read the Wheel of Time started with Dragonmount. So I'm super curious to hear, you're the first person I know who this was the first Wheel of Time they read.
1: Yeah, uh, this was kind of tough. Uh, So again, I like to think of myself as a smart individual. I read a lot of literature, though not a lot of fantasy. And I will say, uh, I got really bogged down in the names. Uh, And there was just a lot of people kind of coming and going really quickly. And so not that that really made it incomprehensible, but it made it hard to know exactly what I was experiencing, right? And I think it's only natural when you read a, you know, introduction like this, that your mind is trying to guess how this weaves into you know all the other pieces um now i i did know that this was a later edition i knew this from our discussions as we we discussed show prep so i knew that it wasn't necessarily something that was going to make sense to me the way it would have as you just said everybody else so i was definitely wondering like it seemed like it fit in one of two areas to me. This is just a totally different group of people, kind of on the side that were just kind of learning about the world through them. Or this is like the Muppet Babies version of characters that will later become important, that as they walked around and gave us all these names, it started to feel like, oh, if I had read this book already, I'd probably be like, oh, of course she ran into him. And oh, yeah, oh, she had a crush on him. That's really funny. So it started to feel a lot more like that. Um, and especially then when it got to the story uh, section, I was like, okay. Uh, This feels like we're laying some groundwork for mythology and and starting to do the world building tasks uh, that would become important after so I I think that summarizes my general thoughts, Uh, you know, obviously you came at it a lot differently and so fill in for me a little bit about you know, uh, I would say, especially this reading how you're thinking about this uh, kind of prologue piece
0: yeah, and I will say this is actually the first time that I have read Ravens as the beginning of a read. I, I often will you know duck in. There are a couple of other short stories that much, much later down the line we can talk about potentially, including in the reread. Um, but Ravens is something that has never actually been in an edition of the book that I own. I, I've never done the ebook thing, and I even the newest edition of the book that I own. it's, you know the third copy that I've had. It's just before that cutoff of when it usually started to show up in, in typical editions of the book. Um, I'm incapable of reading this chapter as anything but a complex bit of foreshadowing with just mm. enough ironic foreshadowing in it to lead people who are trying to draw the conclusions astray. I, I, I think it's fun. I think it's an interesting take on characters who, you know, as you say, this is this is the Muppet ver- baby's version that's I, I, I will. <laughs> Let you know that ahead of time are characters (laughs) who will come back. Um, But it it is very much a a piece of world building and, and little little bits of character here and there. And and this I will say is the criticism of Wheel of Time, broadly speaking, is you have now been introduced to the crux of the Wheel of Time problem for people who don't love the Wheel of Time. It does world building great. It does character building great the plot's a little slow. Sometimes mm. Egwene takes 12, 13 pages to find Rand.
1: <laughs> uh interesting, interesting, interesting. So um so talk to me a little bit more about the the publication history and reasoning. Um as I I understand, again, this, uh, you referenced it, there was an attempt to make this more palatable to kind of the YA market. And so that's where Ravens comes from. But explain that a little more to listeners who are new to this information as
0: I am. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first book in the Wheel of Time series, I'm gonna do a Google on the side of our chat. I'm pretty sure we're looking at early 90s, like 91, 92 was the eye of the world. That's correct. I
1: had looked that up in the front of my edition, uh, 91, so... Okay. No, ninety. No, I was wrong. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So a a few years after that, uh, Jordan had published basically a book a year for the first like three, four books, and then started to slow down a little bit. But once it became clear that the series was going to be successful, uh, Tor, the publisher, decided that they were interested in kind of taking this book and marketing it to a young adult market. They thought, you know, it's it's not an especially mature book. There's no graphic violence. There's no depictions of sex. It, It feels pretty YA or oriented. And I think they very much felt that there were basically two issues with moving this book into the young adult market. One is that the Eye of the World is ridiculously long, and they had a very handy solution to that. They literally just cut the book in half and marketed it as two separate 300-page books as opposed to a giant 600-page book. The other problem with uh, the Eye of the World as an introduction for children as a young adult novel is Dragon Mount, the other uh, prologue that we're about to talk about in a little bit. Um, And it is a little bit denser. It's a little bit more difficult to get into. And tonally, it's probably about as dark as this first book gets that's not a great place for a 12-year-old to dive into the story. And so Robert Jordan wrote the short story, Ravens, and I think very much built it around kind of the the story at the end, giving a lot of world-building knowledge that's very, very helpful to decipher Dragon Mount if you're not a 20-something who's familiar with fantasy tropes and knows how to pull out the right pieces from, from that much darker, much more confusing prologue that comes after Ravens.
1: Hmm. Um. And just uh, out of my own curiosity, was this considered a success? Or I mean, I don't think I've seen a, a full range of YA uh, versions of these books. So did they continue on, or it was kind of a failed experiment?
0: They they also split the second book, so I don't know to what degree Tor was saying the the first one was successful. So let's do a second, and then we feel like by the time they get to book three, kids will be okay with the you know seven hundred pages or whatever the Dragon Reborn is. Um, but they. they 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 only ended up doing it for the first two books, despite the books obviously continuing to be very successful. That being said, it's actually worth noting that in some foreign language markets, the books were split all the way through. If you look at, for example, like the Spanish editions of the books, there are 30 books instead of 15 because every one of the main line novels was split in two for release. Hmm. Interesting.
1: Well, so then I think we'll, we should transition to kind of going through it uh, beat by beat by beat. Uh, So uh, not, not that it will take that long, because like you said, it's a slight little chapter. So um, I'm just gonna note, uh, this is my only high minded literature thought for this, this particular prologue. So, um, you know, one of the things I studied uh, a lot in my undergraduate years and a little bit in graduate school was uh, the epic poets, right? And so Uh, thinking not as much about Homer as I am about Virgil and Dante and uh, then Milton. So one of the things uh, that Virgil especially was famous for is he did a series of what are called pastoral poems. And it's essentially before he's ready to write the Aeneid, the great epic poem of the Roman civilization, he had to first go practice his craft right and so pastoral as a genre is all about being a shepherd and the time shepherding gives you sitting in a field and to contemplate the large questions of life and of love and all these things and so uh then when Milton decides, I'm going to write the the uh, epic in English, and he, he goes on to write Paradise Lost, he thinks of this almost like the Stations of the Cross, right? Like, well, I have to do a pastoral phase like, like Virgil did, and then I can write an epic and so on. And so I know this doesn't quite equal out to that publication history you noted, but as I think of, you know, Robert Jordan writing a 13 book series, what comes to mind is of course epic. And it's not a poem obviously, but it's like a really ambitious uh, you know, undertaking to say the least, and to try to, you know, call your muses or hone your skills, it seems interesting to me that for this prologue that, you know, it was especially to have you encounter this before you read the the larger epic, it was this kind of very pastoral, quaint quiet, you know, contemplative type of chapter. And I think all the, that you just told me about it being more palatable to children makes sense, but it also makes sense as a kind of, you know, distill all that into the calm before the storm, right? Before yeah. we can really get going, let's just give people a kind of quiet picture or something that gets us thinking about some of these themes. Um, and I, it, it feels that that both diminishes it, but also makes it significant, right? That you need both.
0: Yeah. And in fact, Robert Jordan, when he was writing these books, he's, he, spoke a lot about how when he was writing, he really perceived that the fantasy genre had kind of gotten stuck on Tolkien. You know, he was talking mm-hmm. about how a lot of the tropes of the genre were really kind of being repeated over and over again. And so he really wanted to challenge those tropes in high fantasy, but he felt like he couldn't lead off a series by breaking all the genre tropes. He felt like he would lose too much of the audience. So he intentionally built a lot of the early parts of the eye of the world to look like the Shire scenes in The Wheel of Time, mm. or not in The Wheel of Time, in, in The Lord of the Rings, as kind of a way of like bringing you into this very familiar world. And then slowly you kind of lose those trappings of Tolkien as the story goes on. And so I think it's really interesting that, you know, we were thinking about this like epic classic starting place. I think he was doing exactly the same thing, but maybe not like Milton style, maybe a little <laughs> more like Tolkien style.
1: Yeah, well, and and that obviously makes me think of the presence of the dark one in this initial chapter. I mean, my, my notes to myself just said, you know, clearly purposefully mysterious, the breadcrumbs yeah. to let you feel it. And more than anything else, it felt like Sauron to me, right? Yeah. Like it's a, a dark presence that everybody's aware of. We know it still exists. Um, but we aren't yet ready to fight that and and I actually hadn't necessarily gone right to the Shire, but everything you just said makes sense the the setting the kind of very agricultural, uh, you know beautiful bucolic simple things these, these are Hobbit like people uh, yeah. in in their their mm-hmm. Hobbit like ways. Um, so, uh, it was really striking to me. Um, as I understood the these characters they were uh, talking a lot about their futures and what they envisioned yeah. for themselves and what they wanted and especially between Egwene uh,
0: Egwene yeah Eguine. And, and, and I will say there are some weird ass pronunciations in this <laughs> book I'm going to try to keep our pronunciations as much as possible to what is common on the show but any name that hasn't been dropped on the show I am guessing as much as anyone else
1: sure sure so uh, particularly 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 Egwene, I I think, you know, she, my reading of this character was like, she had uh, like the crush parent who she's always accused of staring at uh, by one of her sisters, I believe, uh, or or somebody else in the, the town anyway. Um, and then uh, Rand, who is essentially her betrothed, right? Like, it's like, oh, of course you're gonna marry Rand. It's just it's just understood. And what was really funny to me here is as she starts to think about her future, this felt like very easy to read to me. Oh, it's like, oh, I know this. There's, there's the boring guy and the exciting guy. And yet when they start talking about their futures, both of them are just interested in how many sheep yeah (laughs) it's like i'm gonna be the best shepherd no i'll have even more sheep that that's your dream is that many sheep i'll have more sheep than you um and uh so the last thought i have on that and i want to hear your thoughts on that because you obviously approached it much differently um i had uh you know west side story on the mind because this recently was redone by spielberg and um it felt like Rand to me was the chino right so so maria is supposed to marry chino and chino's like a good guy right yeah. not a great guy he's just a good guy he's an accountant I think and he's gonna and I was like oh Rand's the Chino so I expected Perrin to be like oh I'm gonna see the world or I'm gonna hot air but and he was just like nope
0: still into sheep <laughs> like still interested in that so. <laughs> so so I'm I'm curious then so uh I, I obviously you know Egwene throughout that entire section is thinking about her future, right? She's, she's mooning over boys. She's thinking about all of her sisters and how she's going to get her hair braided earlier or yeah. whatever. But what's interesting is she's thinking about her future and then she arrives and the boys are talking about their future, right? Mm. Did you catch why the boys are talking about their future?
1: Not in any way that I can think think of significantly, but I, you, I just want to pick on, I'd forgotten about the hair braiding thing. And again, a little bit of world building, a little bit of like, here's a custom you're not used to, to kind of intrigue you and and be a part of that. Also, Hey, this is speaking to YA also the the marketing side of things. So, um, that is an interesting clue to me to start thinking about, like, could there be some kind of precognition or something there? So explain to me what I missed if, if there's something there.
0: Yeah. So if you if you follow the, the scene where the boys are talking, I had actually never noticed this until I, I saw it, this read through. Um, Rand jumps in and is like, I'm going to be a king. you know, The king of the sheep is, is the not at all <laughs> funny joke that follows that. Um, and then Matt is saying, you know, I'm not going to have to work. I'm going to avoid work as long as I can. And they're like, how are you going to afford that? And his answer is, I'm going to save an Aes Sedai. Right. I mostly mm. say that so that you know how to pronounce that annoyingly pronounced that. word. Um, but then the, the response from Perrin, the third of, you know, kind of that, you know, three people who are talking about their futures is, well, you've got to be practical. Perrin never actually says what he wants to do in the future, mm. because in the previous scene, we see him and his family talking about his future with Master Luhan. I won't give anything further away, but it actually turns out the conversation that Egwene sees with Perrin and his parents and a few other adults, Perrin was clearly talking about his future because he had just been discussing it with his entire family in the previous scene. Okay, interesting.
1: Um, And then I think, you know, when I encountered the the story section, to me that then was... A a really interesting moment as somebody who was trying to like metagame out what we're we're experiencing, because I was like, either this is going to be the actual story, right? Like, okay, maybe we're very far in the future of all the Wheel of Time, and they're telling us these things that we will now learn about in in this book, Uh, or... This is then like the the history and the myth that informs where we're going, and right. I don't necessarily need you to answer that because I think that right. second prologue answered that question for you, uh, for me. Uh, but I th- want to hear from you when uh, it makes that transition to the the story section. Kind of what is it that you think the the intention was as this comes as a later pre prologue, uh, right. like. How did how did that function for you when you encountered that? I guess is the broad question.
0: Yeah. So so how did it function for me when I first encountered it? Was, yeah. You, you know, like I, I don't want to give away too much exactly sure. what it what is true and what isn't, and you know how much the story matters. But like the story that Tam tells, there is no true information in that story that you don't later receive somewhere in the first half of this book Mm -hmm. right it's it's useful foreshadowing it's useful for setting the tone for the chapter that's to come Um, but you know unless you're reading it there for the first time it's none of its new information and so it's interesting for me the thing that immediately jumps out to me when I read this chapter and you know we don't have enough of the two rivers yet for this to immediately jump out to everyone. But I say, how in the world does Tam know all this? Because mm-hmm. one of the things that we'll see, and this is something I wanted to mention when, you know, I'm gonna bring up a couple of things, is the two rivers is just such an isolated, you know, place. It. it When you look at the five days that everyone in town is together, two of them involve merchants showing up to town, right? And so Mm -hmm. this is a place that doesn't know a lot. People, you know, literally the defining event of this world's history, the mayor didn't know he needed to pitch to another guy to tell that story. And so I think that's really interesting to me is in the Wheel of Time who knows what is really important in a lot of cases, and the fact that Tam knows this is definitely an oddity that, that perks me up as a reader, especially someone who the, the details in the story don't as much just because I, I know some of them. I, and
1: i'm i'm intrigued by by how you just described that and i would i would say that that reinforces my sense of this as again the pastoral like it's yeah. a quiet isolated life and isolation brings contemplation and you know yeah. the the ability to think about bigger questions like a bunch of children contemplating you know not just the simple future but what what is what is it we're supposed to get out of life what is our goal supposed to be as a part of that all right my last one and then i want to go through your list um i think the moment that stood out the most to me in terms of like i know there's something more going on here was uh the thought of uh the dragon right so so the the language around like um you know uh, well, what would somebody who had that nickname be like, right? And that right. that question and the way it went uh, around that. Um, uh, so I, I do know a story, something like that. I'll tell you about the real dragon, not a false one. I felt like that was like the egg I wanted to crack a little bit yeah. and, and know more about that. And again, having already read the second prologue, but no further, right. I, I know that that's clearly going to be a part of this. So yeah. Um, yeah, anything you want to talk about the I, dragon or can or should not, uh, that's that's a different question.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing that immediately jumped out to me as uh, it was looking at the dragon section of this you know this chapter is that not only is it unclear to necessarily all of the characters what's the difference between a dragon and a false dragon they also don't even know what the image of a dragon is right it's very Mm -hmm. easy in fantasy land to think someone is named the dragon because there are creatures called dragons climbing around everywhere but the kids literally ask the question like if someone's called the lion it's because they're like a lion what is this nickname dragon? What the hell does it mean? They, they've never even heard of the creature that this person was named after. I, that yeah. to me was really interesting. It's, it's just that little piece of world building of just how much has been lost in terms of of what's known about you know the origins of these things.
1: Well, and that speaks so much to what people love and hate about fantasy, right? Because, yeah. because there is so much time at the beginning of any fantasy novel of just trying to figure out, okay, what are the rules that I'm in, and yeah. and as you were alluding to before, oh, is this a Tolkien uh, style or is this, you know, uh, you know, I was just reading a great series of fantasy books, and all of a sudden there was like airships and like steampunk, and I was like, oh, like that's we're we're in a steampunky place. I, I didn't. Write recognize that i didn't i didn't sense that so I, I think you're right that that moment stood out as well it's like oh we don't even know what a dragon is but at some point this was well known and enough and of course my mind went to game of thrones right the right at the start of that saga you know dragons aren't real and then you know well i guess we shouldn't spoil game <laughs> of thrones if anybody is, is is that far behind on it um <laughs> but in that same regard i thought it the 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 Kind of intriguing moment for me was that there was a lot of this, you know, when the boys are trying to debate which stories they want to hear there's a lot of kind of dropping in of a lot of history there. And I think, you know, I'm hoping we hear about some of it and then some of it stays mysterious, right? You're like your classical Star Wars. Oh, we'll fill in what the Clone Wars is, but we'll never tell you what, you know, yeah. the Battle of Tanab is or or what have you. Um and so this long list of 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 trolocks, of the is today uh I to I die, uh, and the Al. Um, you know, IEL. That's I
0: yield. the worst one. Oh, I okay. I it. I'm
1: gonna have to start making phonetic notes. Um, so all of those, it's like, oh, okay, so we do have lots of creatures or races, again, still mysterious to me. Um, or uh is this, you know, the type of fantasy where all of this existed once, but has been lost to time? And and right. I'm, I'm curious to hear more of that. So, all right, expert, walk myself and the listeners through more of what you take away from the Ravens uh, chapter.
0: You definitely covered a bunch of the big stuff. I wanted to think about like, what were the boys and Egwene thinking about their futures? I thought that was, you know, a really interesting scene that is, I think Robert Jordan in that scene, what, what worked for me is he did such a good job of mixing in, accurate foreshadowing and subtly ironic foreshadowing so that Mm. anyone who was trying to read into what's going on would get at least something wrong because you know not everything that's being said plays the same way um the other things that jumped out to me so i wanted to briefly talk about the wisdom because that's a character who we didn't talk about at all Mm. um in your discussion. So we briefly see this scene where we have the wisdom, uh, Doral Baron, I think is, is her name. Um, and she's just this super old woman who's dealing with someone who you know, got drunk and injured themselves while they were working with sheep or something. And she has this apprentice, Nynaeve, who I need to mention because of how annoying to pronounce her name is. <laughs> um, and there's a moment in that section that i don't know you know whether you you picked up on it but ninety bandages the person's leg and then the wisdom unbandages it looks at the wound frowns and rebandages it and that's the kind of like little mystery that i feel like robert jordan is really good at seeding in the things that he does and finding little nuggets like that to wonder what's going on I, I think are part of the fun of a reread, like, right? This, so I'm curious. Did you notice that? Was that something that you had, you had thought about or hypothesized about at all?
1: Yeah. Um. So I, it, I dump, I bumped on it as I read it, and then clearly forgot it uh, in the, in the intervening uh, twelve totally. hours or whatever. So, uh, but I, I think to me, my reaction at that time is that did feel significant in some way, and it's. St- Struck me like um, the kind of like, I, I think my mind went to a magical wound, yeah. right? Something that won't heal properly. If that is it a cut that stays open or if it's a, an infection that spreads, I, I certainly didn't know that much. I mean, the fact that it's rebandaged says to me, well, there's nothing that can be done about it. So whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Um, is that a Frodo, you know, right. a Nazgul uh, wound that will? ache on the anniversary every year or is that something more serious i think if it were something like a plague that this character would have isolated and, and removed the person if there was a danger to anybody else or certainly not like a zombie wound or something like that that will uh take them over um but certainly and i think why it left my mind is it just felt like well there's not that much concern about it, right? Yeah. And again, I was like, "Well, these people might be living thousands of years after what I'm about to read." Anyway, so <laughs> fair,
0: <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Uh, The only other thing that jumped out at me, just because I had never noticed it in this short story before, is when um, they are, when the adults are talking about what story uh, is going to be told, when the mayor is first like, I have some stories, and then he, you know, kicks it over to Tam, and Tam says, you know, I want to tell you about the dragon, and then we have, I think it was Billy Conger, or Ken Bui, or one of the old crowd, Grumpy man characters was like he he said something along the lines of um, if you want to tell them about war you can tell them about wars and he lists a bunch of wars he's like Mm -hmm. you know you could tell them about the like war of shadow or you could tell them about the hundred years war or you could tell them about all of these things and then after a beat he says something about the Aiel war and immediately Tam. Gets like aggressive and mad very quickly. His mood changes, and that's another one of those moments that's like something is off here. And I know what it is, but as a first-time reader, that's it's an interesting kind of tidbit or clue to to pull out that there's something about either like Aiel or the Aiel War specifically that that seems to like put Tam on edge.
1: I mean, it sounds like an old racist grandpa, right? Like, who still is fighting World War II in his head or something like that, right? Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, take the metaphor we were just talking about, it's an old wound of some yeah. kind, right? So there's still something causing pain or causing discomfort about uh, that subject. Um, and and I do like that about fantasy, I do like coming into something and saying like, oh, there's deep history here, right? That there's something you know, I think a lot of people who, again, get turned off by fantasy say, well, I need to know everything. Like I need to know what all these things were as a part of this. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to often speak in Star Wars because that's my language. Some of the people who didn't like the sequel trilogy was were saying like, well, that means the first one was meaningless if there's still a war in this new one, right? The OT right. doesn't mean anything if there's still a war in the sequel trilogy. And I think, you know, People trained in fantasy don't think that way. And right. there's something about it that's closer to the real world, right? <laughs> world War II happened. That doesn't mean World War I was meaningless or we, winning World War One was meaningless. Or sure, we won World War II and then eventually the Vietnam War happened and we didn't win so much, right? So now we're getting political in this show, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I think there's a way in which fantasy has to really establish that you are in the moment, and this is the moment that will create a great story for you, but that doesn't mean it's the only moment. And there have been moments before this one, and there will be moments long after you're gone from this world. Uh, So we have to experience what we can experience here.
0: That is a very good summation of how the Wheel of Time works, as you will find out in like (laughs) two chapters. Cool.
1: And I was actually thinking in my head, I, I knew enough to know that that might be a good way to throw it to the second prologue, yeah, right? Absolutely. Anything else? I'm looking at my notes. Certainly not anything. Uh, so why don't uh, you just take over and hit us with a quick summary of the even more brief Dragon Mountain.
0: Uh, yes, uh, Dragonmount begins, you know, very similarly pastorally to the previous prologue, um, with a bunch of dead bodies at a party. Um, so we follow uh, Luz Theron Telamon as he um, grapples with lack of sanity and understanding of where he is and what is going on. And it's clear that some sort of calamity has happened in the place where he is, yet he seems to be all right. Um, Soon from seemingly out of nowhere, he is um, joined by Elan Morin, um, who basically reveals that he is in some way associated with the Dark One or evil powers, and that it is actually Luz Theron who has killed all of the people who are in this building, including his beloved wife Ileana, all of his children, and everyone who he once knew or loved. Um, In his grief, Luz Theron then summons the male side of the One Power, Sidin which is a weird sentence if you don't know what else is happening and obliterates everything, creating a giant volcano, which also creates a little Island in a river, which doesn't seem very important in the moment, but is eventually.
1: Hmm. So my first note on this one is all caps. Now this is more like it. So whatever really didn't work for me in the kind of quiet, pastoral ravens worked for me here and I think this felt again like the scene in the movie before the credits and then you're like okay like there's a lot I don't understand here but a prologue like this feels like the promise of you will understand this and you're yeah. seeing something that's really important and you're going to eventually understand this and and so uh, get ready um, and my other note is that it just even more than the first one, um, really did the beautiful thing, which I again associate with Star Wars, which is let's just drop in the names of places and things. And I'm sure some of them will be important. I'm sure some of them won't. Um, but you're placed in a deep history. You understand you're a part of a mythology. Um, and that makes me excited as a reader. I'm like, okay, I've got the first inklings of yep. a big puzzle to figure out, and I want to figure that out. Uh, I think I'll leave my initial reactions there, and just, uh, again, I think this one you can talk to me about, like, when you first read it, when yep. you were picking it up uh, from your dad's collection, or, uh, you know, this reread, or both, kind of, how are you reacting to Dragon mode?
0: Yeah, uh, so... First off, I love Dragon Mount. I I am also, like you, someone who loves to be thrown in the deep end in terms of, you know, lore and world building. And, you know, I think the best way to learn a world is to barely stay afloat in it for a little while. And I think Mm. Dragon Mount does a really good job of, you know, putting you right on the spot in the deep end where if you get up on your tippy toes, you're fine. But it's easy to get lost in, in this prologue. Um, I've always enjoyed it. I'll be honest. I don't recall the first time I read it because I was nine, but you know, for (laughs) the most part, um, I think it's a, it's a really fun prologue. Like you said, it does a really good job of, hinting at what's to come without necessarily telling you which are the things that you're going to latch on to and which are the things that will be forgotten in one chapter, which I is what I really appreciate about chapters like this, right, is you're going to read, you know, the nine rods of dominion and not know whether that's a real thing or something that will never come up again um, at any point. Um, in this reread in particular, um, there was actually something that I keyed in on that I never had before, um, which actually gets me to something that I was going to ask you before we started recording this podcast, Greg, and I'm going to ask you now on the podcast because I think it works really well, (laughs) um, which is that I'm sure a number of the people who are listening to the podcast are people who have seen the television show and now would Mm. like to get into the books. Sure. This, This is a scene that is somewhat adapted for the television show, but isn't put word for word, scene for scene in the show. When things like that happen, I feel like mentioning that things are different, but not mentioning how (laughs) is the correct approach. Is that... I think that's probably the correct
1: approach. So uh, just we have only sketched out plans for the full journey. But what our intention is at this point is to read the whole first book and then do a set of episodes between this season and the, the book two season that would go over the show and talk through uh, all those questions. So I I think I would say for my sake, for, for our new readers, I want to privilege readers because, yeah, you know, I'm sure. a lit guy. Uh, let's, let's just do what you said note the differences but not necessarily what they are I will just say that especially the end of this chapter feels unfilmable right like it would be very hard to do yeah. so um my guess out of the dark would be you kind of have to change that in some way or or figure out a different way to do it so yeah so your no is it difference throughout or particularly at the end of
0: this? Uh, So difference throughout. So two things. So they actually kind of adapted this scene for the show in two ways, one of which I don't want to get into at all until we see the show. But we end up in the show getting a similar scene from the same era, but not this exact moment. And what the show highlights about that is something that should be apparent as we read this chapter, but isn't necessarily, is that this is 3,000 years ago. These people aren't speaking the same language as the people in the first chapter, Mm. right? And in fact, as I was reading this chapter for the first time, there are a number of words in this chapter that are capitalized, that don't necessarily make sense as proper nouns, It turns out now that I have read it and now I know this world the way I do, all of those capitalized words are words that we will later learn in the language they are speaking. And so as I'm reading this chapter now, there's a bunch of really deep lore drops of like three or four words that are in caps. And I'm like, oh, I know what word they are speaking, even though this is being translated for the reader's benefit.
1: Interesting, interesting, interesting. And in the context of reading this after Ravens, I think, you know, I had no doubt this was a long time ago, right? Like, right. so again, I had theorized all through Ravens and then I'm coming into this and I'm like, oh, well, this is this, the they were telling the ancient story of this. Yeah. So again, I, I wasn't positive whether we were continuing with the Ravens characters or these right. characters in, in the chapters ahead. But I was certainly like, oh, at least I I understood that we were now back in time from that first one. Totally. And what you're saying there, you know, I, I mean, I love a good grammar point about the capitalization. <laughs> um, and I think my mind naturally went towards, I mean, a lot of them look like titles yep. to me, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, titles one character is giving the other, or that I assumed other characters yep. had or or held. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense to me well and i mean just to be very clear i had no idea about the language thing um and that piece of it uh but that that again just further intrigues me like okay so now we're going to be talking not just about one group of characters but a deep evolution over time and so on and uh some of my my favorite you know that i think i in our our trailer announcement which we recorded so long ago uh i had hypothesized like generations but we're clearly talking about something deeper at this level right we're talking like societal evolution over thousands of years as you just noted um yeah yeah, go ahead. yeah.
0: no and i just wanted to mention that that three thousand year number that's that's what tam throws out so that's that's okay. approximate but nice. yeah um so more than anything else um where,
1: where was my head at at the end of this? Uh, some of the things I want to uh, talk through about. Um, I just thought clearly what what felt to me like the piece you were supposed to take away, even if you couldn't uh, understand every bit of it, was this emphasis on the cyclical, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the quote that came to mind was, this has happened before, it will happen again, um, which I would immediately link to Battlestar Galactica, but my half-assed Googling suggests is actually from Peter Pan originally. Uh, so, um, so that, really felt like what we were experiencing here and the character who represented the shadow uh, was emphasizing that he knew this was all going to happen again this is just what he's been experiencing whereas uh, the other character uh, the primary character there Luz Theron Theron, uh, that he was in his madness in the shock of the trauma of what he's experiencing he is having it revealed to him like no this is just going to happen over and over again so uh so that ended on the quote from this work uh which was it is not done between us it will not be done until the end of time and i was like oh boom okay that's what the wheel of time is about right we're going to get this final confrontation we're going to see the next rotation of this cycle or if not the next the final rotation of this cycle and understand when this is done what that will mean yeah. So um, that, and this is my one literary thought. Maybe uh, this will be my my corner, my segment, uh, each each uh, chapter. Uh, but my one kind of deeper literary thought is that is that there's actually a really rich tradition of that idea of two characters stuck in a cycle. I mean modern day we would go to Groundhog Day or something like that but there's a deeper tradition there and, and two that came to mind a lot um first would be Sir Gowan and the Green Knight which is a medieval story that was just a fantastic movie last summer uh but again the the in that cycle the the Green Knight comes and and challenges Sir Gowan um and uh And we get the sense as that story unfolds that this happens over and over and over again. And there's a lot of kind of readings of that that are, oh, we're experiencing the final one or part of that. Uh, A more modern example, and I'm going to say, I don't know exactly how this lines up with Wheel of Time, but I was thinking of um, the. Once very popular, now kind of maligned, Dark Tower books from Stephen King. Oh yeah, uh, with the Dark gunslinger, Tower right? Books. Yeah, uh, and the gunslinger also is experiencing his chase of, I want to say, the man in black. I think they keep it that correct. generic. Uh, that that chase is cyclical in its nature, and it's another yeah. sense of this pair stuck in this loop. And as I recall, the the Dark Tower books uh, again felt like we were experiencing maybe the penultimate, it wasn't the final one, but that we'd experienced the penultimate. And as that started over, we weren't going to read the final one, but that we could rest assured that that was about to happen. Now, those books have a just twisted and tangled publication history, more so than Wheel of Time. And, you know, uh, as I understand it, and I'm a novice and I I certainly would defer to a Stephen King expert, but he has always claimed he had a full plan for those. And yet his traumatic accident is in one of the books that obviously he didn't plan on getting hit by a car and, and thankfully surviving and all that. So anyway, those were two comparisons that came to mind right away to say, okay. and there's something, um, you know, uh, there's something so comforting in that as a yeah. storytelling mode. Um, you know, and it's to me, the, the it's the two masks, right? The, yeah. the masks of drawbar, the smiling mask and the frowning mask. And the beauty of this human life is that life will keep repeating itself mm-hmm. and we can take comfort in that which means that when we are the frowny mask and we die, we have to leave that cycle. We can be happy in the happy mask, knowing that it goes on without us and, and in our stead, right? That it is not the end. And so thinking about that as this kind of place we're going to be residing for this this uh, fantasy series made me excited, right? Like, I'm like, okay. This is something I understand. I I get just enough of where this is going that I'm gonna I'm I'm thrilled to see what this is going to be, um and whatever you know again setting this off as a prologue it's like well it, this isn't this isn't the story but when we get into the story we're gonna have uh this at work and and I'm excited to see uh, a lot of that play. All right, that was a lot of me talking. React to any piece of that you're interested in.
0: <laughs> I, I mean, at, at some point, I think you're just right. I, I think. <laughs> I am very excited for you to read literally the first paragraph of chapter one after hearing (laughs) that entire discussion, because it fits exactly with what you're talking about. Uh, I was curious, just because, you know, you are, you know, first time reading this, first time, you know, approaching any of this, how you grappled, if at all, with just how different these two prologues were because you know most people I think dive in their first experience with the Wheel of Time is Dragon Mount it's it's dark and it's intense and it's doing that like really dense world building but you know you jumped in somewhere else do you think it it took anything away like
1: well I mean my in the moment reactions definitely suggest that if I'd read Dragon Mount first I would have been much more excited And I left this chunk of our reading because I I read, we'll talk briefly about the two quotes that follow, I'm sure, or, or maybe we'll save those, but I read those and then I stopped. So that's all I've read and I left this feeling excited to continue and go on. It wasn't that Ravens turned me off, it just didn't achieve that. And so... I can imagine, again, maybe some of our listeners, maybe somebody uh, just interested in the show picks up the book, and I can imagine them kind of reading that first piece and being like, I don't know if this is for me, I don't know if this is what I'm interested in. Um, I guess it doesn't break it. I'm good. just running on the assumption that Ravens isn't in the show. Is that something you can reveal without giving too much away is ravens a part of the adaptation
0: it it is not and in fact um i I think it's it's fair to say in the first couple shots of the first episode you realize that our characters in the show are about three or four years older than they are in the books so it's it's a relatively loose adaptation and we don't do ravens at all
1: yeah um and i guess then the only caution I would have as a reader is I do think the very end of Dragon uh, Mount um, is such a kind of WTF moment. You're like, what, a a mountain? Like, uh, I think that that could be, you know, again, I think of my wife who has patience for a lot of things will watch almost anything with me where she would just be like, yeah, this isn't for me. Like, this is not my thing. So, so I certainly can see that um, even somebody who's like on board for fantasy would be like, I just can't picture that. And that's maybe the biggest difficulty. I think some people have when, when you start to get into mythical creatures or, or worlds, it's like, well, I can't imagine what that power is or something like that. So.
0: Yeah. Well, and this actually, we, we had talked about, like, maybe mentioning the the map or, you know, some of the, you know, end papers at the end of, you know, this prologue. I love that on the map, Dragon Mount just stands out. It's in, like, the you know, top right quadrant right next to tar it literally it's in a plane of nothing. And then you can literally on the map just see a giant mountain jutting up out of nowhere. It, that helped me honestly, as much as anything else is being able to identify it is in the middle of nowhere. It is just a giant ass mountain big enough that it shows up on every map of the world.
1: Yeah. It, well, I, I always laugh. I, I had a colleague a, a couple jobs ago who said, uh, she would open a book and if there's a map in the front, she was just out at that. Whereas I'm the complete opposite. It's like, okay, uh, I want to learn about this. I want to be flipping to it constantly. Uh, I often get uh, galleys of books, and one of the things that stinks about a good fantasy galleys, you're like, I got it early, I can read this thing. They often don't have the maps, and there's no point in reading some of these books if you don't have the map to constantly flip to and, and interpret and understand. Uh, so I get excited by a good map, and I was excited by this. Um, it was striking to me that... Um, you know, there's a, it's a big world, right? That was my first reaction to the map is like, oh, we've got a lot going on here. And, and, you know, again, I knew it was a 13 books, 13 or 15 book series. So that there's a lot that can be filled in over time. Uh, But I am curious how much of this will kind of come as fast as we are. And again, I wouldn't be a good star Wars fan if I didn't know Andor. I was like, hey, that's a Star Wars show coming out. Uh, I'm excited about that. (laughs) But I'm going to imagine it's not the character from Rogue One.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm going to assert that it is until you find out otherwise. Um, uh, I, I did actually just want to mention one other thing about the map, um, just yeah. because I know for me this was a challenge. Depending on what edition of the map you can get, it's a little frustrating. Sometimes Emmons Field, where our characters and Ravens were, and where, you know, a, a at least early on, you know, will have some characters, it's right on the spine of the book. If you go to the middle of the spine and then just a little southwest of it, you'll find Emmons Field. I actually had no idea where it was because the first edition of the book I had, that was right on the crease. As you would fold the book, so you just couldn't see Emmons Field. Um, yeah. But it's worth noting, if you're wondering where that is, Dragon Mount is pretty easy to identify, but mm-hmm. Emmons Field is a little tricky to find sometimes. Um, sure,
1: I'll just share. I'm, I'm working from what I believe is the most recent uh, uh, mass market paperback, so not the larger trade size, but the smaller mass market. And it it, it did take a little flex uh, to okay. see it fully. It's visible. You can see it. Um, it's not in the spine, but you really yanking it and giving that spine a good crack to see uh, what's around it uh, was necessary. So I, I think s- people people who ran out and grabbed the cheap edition like I did probably are seeing the same thing. So. Excellent. Um. All right, other random thoughts again absolutely beautiful how many things they got dropped in i want to know what the ring of tamerlin is the nine rods of dominion the halls of servants and the gates of parents something autocrition i think yeah <laughs> my my notes got auto corrected to Perrin disney and i knew it wasn't disney cuz copyright police would come down on that but uh, again that's what makes me so excited it's like oh yeah. like all of this is there and how much of that we'll learn again. I, now knowing what I know, I'm sure we'll hear about all of this as the very distant past, but both prologue shared that and really brought me in. Uh, and then I already said a a big WTF on the the breaking of the world uh, at the end there and what's happening there. So, uh, encouraged, but a little
0: confused by, by that would be my mood in that. So Um, this was actually, I was going to ask kind of as a, you know, closing thought, yeah. If you were so into all of, you know, the Ring of Tamerlin and the Gates of Perindeeson, which, yes, that's exactly what to take away from this chapter. <laughs> I'm curious what your thoughts were on these, these two quotes that we have just after Dragon Mount, um, both from unknown authors in the Fourth Age.
1: So... I think as a reader I struggle with this as a kind of common thing in fantasy right either an epigraph or or you know an epigraph on every chapter oh gosh, I recently read a set of books and I just skipped them. Like every chapter started with two and I just skipped them every dang time. And eventually I realized I was getting like half the experience because they were giving you important information and I was mad at myself. Um, so what did I take away from this? It immediately was clear to me that I liked the intertextuality of the two, meaning that they both were uh, were telling the same story but we're giving us different perspectives on it the comparison that immediately came to mind were the gospels of the the bible right that it's like oh well this guy wrote down how he remembered jesus and then this guy wrote down how he remembered it and uh, you know god thousands of years of scholars have debated the differences between them and so this to me felt like okay this is the equivalent here we have this world breaking defining event and now we're going to start to get it and then my mind. Absolutely went to the promised one, right? Like, oh, all right. So now we have a, a more relevant prophecy type thing. Again, a very familiar trope of um, we're going to learn about this promised one, and this may be what defines the end times or the yeah. the final time, as we did. Uh, so quotes, I was like, good, kind of cool map. I just wrote, hell yeah. Like, let's do it. Let's fill in this map. So, uh, anything you want to clue me in on without giving too much away?
0: No, I mean, this was my challenge with Dragon Mount, right? Is this, there's not much that I can do other than saying these are some cool phrases without giving you additional information. I just wanted to note, you were kind of talking about like the intertextuality and how the authors are giving you kind of different perspectives on the same period. I would just encourage as a reader, treat, everything in the wheel of time kind of as if it's doing that one of the things that robert jordan i think is really great at is third person limited where he's you know parsing out information very carefully and only giving you an individual character's perspective and so i think to some degree he's giving you that here right he's, he's telling you like look we've already heard four versions of this story in 30 pages and they're all very very different nice
1: Nice. All right. Then all that remains is to assign our homework. So I'm looking in my mass market paper edition. I'm seeing chapter one and chapter two equal 30 pages in my book. So I think next episode, we'll tackle both chapters one and chapters two. Uh, As we said in our announcement, we may bounce back and forth and kind of, we don't ever want uh, this to become unpleasant or burdened, like, oh my gosh, I actually have uh, too much reading to do between weeks. So uh, I think that it's a nice round, 30 pages. Let's tackle the first two chapters uh, next time we get together. Uh, Any other
0: closing thoughts? No, I have no other closing thoughts. I am so thrilled that we got this started. I am excited that you're excited. And I am just just very excited to see what happens as we continue working through the Wheel of Time and as we continue to journey through the Glass Columns.
1: So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing
0: with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or
1: library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once
0: again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.